MacCast, Sunday, February 5th, 2023. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another episode of Mac Hints, Tips, News, Information, all the goings-ons in the Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you are having a great, wonderful day weekend. Uh, can't even think of what other days of the week there are, month, year, whatever it might be. I hope you're having a great time. Uh, I was on a little bit of a, I think, kind of unplanned hiatus, and I want to thank anybody who emailed in and kind of asked how I'm doing. I am doing fine. Uh, just took a little time for myself. I haven't really done that. I've been doing this show for going on 18 years now. Is that right? 18 years, 2004, 2023, something like that. Uh, and uh, I don't really take breaks. Uh, pretty much uh, almost every week I've been doing an episode since then with the occasional break here and there, vacation. But uh, took a little time and that feel refreshed, relaxed, glad to be back here to talk to you about a bunch of great Apple and Mac things that have been going on between episodes. Lots of stuff happening, lots of super exciting things, including new hardware, new machines to talk about, new audio products to talk about. We're going to get into all of those. Apple had quarterly, quarterly results, so we'll see how they did. We have, of course, rumors coming up about the AR VR headset, iPads, iPhones, all that good stuff, and we're going to get into all of it. So should be a good episode from that standpoint. And then got a lot of great feedback from you on... Uh, Things that we talked about on previous episodes as well. So a lot of you chimed in on my thing of the moment from last time. Don't get that a lot, but uh, there's uh, some feedback and information from that that I'll share with you. Also, we have some questions and follow-up on some out-of-memory errors and things that seem to be weird. And then a question about automation and shortcuts uh, that will kind of round out this episode of the MacCast. So should be a good one. I say we just jump right into things, starting with some of those new products, specifically new M2 Mac Pros. Uh, Apple did update, as we expected, the uh, the Mac Pro, MacBook Pros, rather, should be more specific. Uh, so we have M2 Pro processors, M2 Mac Macs, rather, processors, and Apple did release updated versions of the 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros with those processors in them. As far as what they look like, um, some nice updates to the M1s. The M2 Pro has a 10 or 12-core CPU. The Max has a 12-core CPU, and both of them are built on Apple's next-generation or second-generation 5-nanometer process. Uh, the Pro version of the M2 has up to a 19-core GPU with up to 32 gigabytes of unified RAM. The Max goes all the way up to 38 cores and up to 96 gigabytes of RAM. On the Pro, you will get 200 gigabytes per second of unified memory bandwidth, and with the Max, double that, 400 gigabytes per second. 
Overall, the design remains the same. Also, the display is the same. The Liquid Retina XDR display with mini-LED backlighting and ProMotion up to 120 hertz. For storage, you can get up to 8 terabytes of SSD storage. Uh, They also updated the Wi-Fi with Wi-Fi 6E, Bluetooth 5.3, and the HDMI has been updated from 2.0 to 2.1. That means it will support 8K displays, and you have about one hour extra battery life on the new models as well, up to 22 hours of battery life. And for the Wi-Fi, one thing to note is uh, 6E, you're going to need to have a compatible router, And also, Apple will need to release new frameworks before third-party developers can take advantage of the Wi-Fi 6E. But I would expect that to happen here pretty soon, an update for devs. And uh, as far as what that means for you, 6E offers higher speeds, lower latency, and less interference. So just more reliable, faster Wi-Fi, which is always a good thing. Three Thunderbolt 4 ports on the Pro MacBook Pro models. That HDMI port has an SD card slot, a 3.5 millimeter jack. Also still has MagSafe 3 for charging, the 1080p FaceTime HD camera, and the six-speaker sound system. So all that stuff pretty much remains the same. Pricing remains the same as well, starting at $19.99 for the 14-inch MacBook Pro and $2,499 US for the 16-inch MacBook Pro. All in all, some really nice updates. Uh, Apple says about 20% faster across the board. Of course, we're going to have to wait for real-world numbers to come in, but a nice little bump up. uh, And if you're in the market for a new MacBook Pro, uh, now's the time to probably buy one. Then Apple did announce also updated Mac Minis. So we got the Mac Mini not only with an M2 processor, but also as we were expecting a Pro version, the M2 Pro. Uh, They also got a price drop, which is nice, dropping $100 US starting at $599 US, which is a new lower price for the M2 version. And the Pro version starts at $1,299 US. For that base model Pro, you will get a 10-core CPU, a 16-core GPU, and 16 gigabytes of RAM, along with a 512-gigabyte SSD. You can also get the M2 Pro chip in a 12-core version, 12-core CPU, with a 19-core with a GPU, and up to 32 gigabytes of RAM on either model's can. Either one of those models can be configured. The base model Mac Mini with the M2 processor has an 8-core CPU, a 10-core GPU, and a 256GB SSD, along with 8GB of RAM. Of course, you can configure that how you'd like. On the storage side, you can go all the way up to 8TB of SSD storage. And then the port configurations largely remain the same. Two Thunderbolt 4 ports, two USB-A ports, one HDMI 2.0 port, gigabit Ethernet, although you can also opt for 10 gigabit Ethernet, and a headphone jack. The Pro version also adds two more Thunderbolt 4 ports, so giving you a total of four. The minis also come with Wi-Fi 6E and Bluetooth 5.3, And as far as display support goes, the M2 Mac Mini supports still just two displays, although you can now use Thunderbolt for both displays. On the M1 version, you had to use Thunderbolt 
and HDMI. So as far as options go with the M2 version, you can do one display with up to 6K resolution at 60 Hertz over Thunderbolt, then add another display with up to 5K resolution at 60 Hertz over Thunderbolt, or have your second display run off the HDMI at 4K resolution at 60 Hertz. And then for the M2 Pro version of the Mini, you can now do up to three displays, two displays with up to 6K resolution at 60 Hertz over Thunderbolt with one display up to 4K resolution at 60 Hertz over the HDMI. If you want to do two displays, you can do one display with up to 6K resolution on Thunderbolt and one display up to at 4K, excuse me, up to 144 Hertz over HDMI. And then if you want to go with just one display, then you can do up to that 8K resolution at 60 Hertz or 4K resolution at 240 Hertz over the HDMI port. So you got a lot more uh, display options with this new version of the Mac Mini. And one thing to note, although I will say it's not probably a huge concern for many users unless you need the most extremely fast SSD performance, but for those of you of you who care, just like we saw with uh, the changes to the MacBook Air, storage is a little bit different how it's configured in these models. So in the base configuration on both the Mac Mini at 256 gigabit gigabytes, excuse me, of storage and the MacBook Pro with 512 gigabytes of storage, they have slightly slower SSD speeds than the previous M1 models with equivalent storage. And that's due to the fact that the these new models are using a single chip. So in the previous version, you had two 128 gigabyte modules to get to the 256 gigabyte storage and two 256 uh, chips to get to the 512 gigabytes of NAND flash storage. The new models, the M2 models in those configurations now only have a single chip. And because of that, that lowers the overall read-write speeds a little bit of uh, the storage. So if you want the very fastest storage, you're going to want to upgrade to 512 in the M2 Mac Mini or 1 terabyte in the Mac Mini uh, M2 Pro version, and then on the MacBook Pros, you're going to want to up from the 512 gigabytes of storage in the base models to one terabyte, so you can get the fastest speeds. So just something to be aware of there. Like I said, for all uh, all but anybody who needs the absolute fastest performance out of these machines in terms of the storage, it's likely not going to be much of an issue. And then, as you might expect, Apple did discontinue the Intel version of the Mac Mini, finally. And they also sunsetted the M1 version. So the M2 is now the replacement for all of those machines. So one question, especially with the new Mac Mini on the market, that a lot of people are wondering is, where does that leave the Mac Studio? And I've been reading a lot about this, reading a lot of analysis, and I would say overall, the Mac Studio is still going to be the choice for professionals who need the absolute top performance out of their Mac. So we're talking about the folks that previously probably would have bought a Mac Pro, um, and they need the most performance, the most I.O., 
more display support, higher display support, all of that sort of stuff. For the rest of us, for most people, um, even for some pretty pro workflows, a Mac Mini with an M2 Pro could likely fit the bill and likely could save some money. So I expect that uh, the Mac Pro, once Apple gets that machine out with uh, new, you know, M2 Pro and M2 Ultra processors, um, that that's going to ultimately probably take the place of the Mac Studio. I have a feeling we may only ever see one version of the Mac Studio. I could be wrong. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what Apple does with the Pro model, which is expected sometime this year, probably around Worldwide Developer Conference. Um, Apple did can, unfortunately, it sounds like, according to the rumor mill, the Extreme M-Series chip. So Ultra is likely going to be the top of the line, basically double uh, the M2 Pro is likely what we can expect in terms of specs. And so we'll have to wait and see. There's also a lot of questions with the upcoming Pro model about what upgradability is going to look like with the M-series processors. We've got analysts like Mark Gurman out there saying he doesn't think there's even going to be upgradable GPUs because of Apple's integrated uh, integrated architecture and, um, you know, all system on a chip. I think that would be likely a big misstep, uh, especially when you're trying to target the pro market. They're going to want to be able to slot in, you know, NVIDIA cards and other high-end cards and things like that. I do think there'll be still slot support. It's going to be a tower design, I'm pretty sure. Reconfigured a little bit. You might not have memory upgrade options with the integrated memory, but uh, I think they've got to stick with storage and graphics upgrade options. It would be really weird for them to put out a machine without that and call it Pro. If they're going to do anything at that point, they might as well stick with the studio and just rev that thing up. So we'll have to see, wait and see what happens. Um, finally, kind of on the Mac front, on the processor front, there are reports from Digitimes that Apple is working on and planning three nanometer versions of their processors, the M3 processors. And just like they did this year with the M2s, it's expected the first machine we'll see that in will be a MacBook Air update, likely scheduled for release in the second half of this year. So similar to this year, likely to see M3 coming to MacBook Air first. And that's kind of the latest with uh, all of the Mac stuff. Now, another big thing that happened this week is Apple brought the full-sized HomePod back. We had had rumors that Apple might be looking to update the HomePod or bring out a new version of the HomePod, full-size HomePod. Calling it a new version or next generation of the, the original HomePod, yeah, it... I guess we can call it that. It does have some minor improvements, but man, it's an awfully familiar product. It's almost like the uh, the return of the original HomePod, in my opinion. Now, getting into some of the little differences, it is slightly stouter, chubbier. It's 0.2 inches shorter. Uh, the colors white and now midnight instead of space gray. So midnight's kind of that 
darker version of space gray with a little bit of a slight blue hint to it. So that should look really nice. Apple swapped out the processor. The original HomePod had an A8, I think, A-series processor. The new one has the S7 processor, which is the processor from the Apple Watch uh, Series 7. And then uh, Apple got rid of some of the speakers. So the new version actually has less speakers in it. It has five tweeters instead of seven. It also has less microphones, four instead of six. That doesn't seem to have affected the sound quality or the performance, at least not according to some of the early reviews. It does have a U1 chip in it and also support for Matter, so that's new. There is also now a legitimate removable power cord. You may remember on the original model, the power cord can be pulled out if you pull hard enough, but you're not supposed to remove it, and it's not really recommended. Uh, This time around, they do actually have a detachable power cord, and that's kind of nice if you want to run the power cord through uh, smaller or tighter areas and things like that to kind of conceal and do cable management and stuff like that. So that that's going to be pretty nice. Um, the new model also does have now a temperature and humidity sensor. And in the future, uh, Apple says with a software update, it's going to be able to do sound recognition for smoke and carbon monoxide alarms. Um, So it can listen for those things and then send an alert to your iPhone if, say, you're not at home, uh, if your smoke alarm or your carbon monoxide alarm is going off. Those last two features, interestingly enough, are also being enabled or were enabled by the latest HomePod update for the HomePod Mini. So it got activation of its temperature and humidity sensors. And then later on with another software update, we're expecting to get the sound recognition. So if you have an existing HomePod Mini, uh, you now have some new features enabled in terms of new sensors. And we'll talk a little bit about those a little bit later in the show and how you might use them. Uh, The base of the HomePod is also slightly redesigned. It has a little bit of a different base. I think it keeps it a little bit more off the table. Uh, Unfortunately, it does sound like the old issue of staining wood surfaces. If you leave the HomePod on it, uh, it still exists, especially for the white model. A little bit different kind of pattern. It looks a little more, a little less extreme than the original version but it definitely is still there so be careful when putting a home pod on a wood surface you probably want to put something under that base uh, to protect your furniture the new home pod will also do a stereo pair um, but be aware it will not pair with the original home pod and apple says that's because they want the sound to be basically the same the profile of the two stereo paired things and because they changed the speaker arrangement or the number of speakers in there um, they want you to always pair two of the same series of home pods so if you get a second generation home pod you need to have two second gen home pods or two original home pods to do your stereo pair same thing with the home pod mini it's also why you can't stereo pair a full-size home pod with a home pod mini so just be aware of that Bloomberg claims that Apple is also continuing to work on other smart home products. An interesting one they say they're working on is a home hub display, kind of like a a simplified iPad, if you were, 
that could be mounted on a wall. They say it's going to have kind of a magnetic mounting system so you could get a magnetic stand or different kinds of wall mounts and basically have all your home controls and smart devices on this little tablet. Also, it would be able to do FaceTime calls and that sort of thing. I would imagine intercom and all kinds of interesting stuff. So that sounds like a really cool product to me, especially if you're building out a HomeKit-enabled uh, smart smart house. You know, if you're into HomeKit, that'd be a nice little addition. A lot of people use older iPads, which is a great purpose uh, to do that. But now you would have a dedicated device that you could buy for Apple for doing that, at least according to Bloomberg. They also say that Apple is exploring a device that would combine Apple TV, HomePod, and a FaceTime camera into a single unit. We've been hearing that rumor for a while. So likely something Apple's been working on. And Bloomberg is also saying that we expect to have an updated Apple TV. That's in the works. Might not see it until early 2024. And overall, they say the design would remain the same, but it would get an updated processor and likely support for 8K streaming. I know we have some 8K televisions out there. I'm not sure how much 8K content is available yet, but maybe Apple thinks by 2024, some of the streaming services and things will be ready to start stepping up to 8K. I could be wrong. I'm not aware of any 8K stuff. So if you know somebody that's putting out 8K content right now, let me know. But usually televisions are way ahead of the curve and then Apple kind of comes on board with the Apple TV either right after or soon after, you know, that technology becomes available. So we'll have to wait and see on that. Mark Gurman also said that Apple does not appear to be actively updating or working on a new version of the HomePod Mini at this time. So we're not expecting a HomePod Mini update this year. And as a matter of fact, Ming-Chi Kuo also predicted that a HomePod mini update would happen in the second half of 2024. So much later in 2024, he's also predicting the same timeline for an AirPods Max 2 update and that low-cost version of Apple's AirPods that he's been talking about for a long, long time. I think that was originally rumored to maybe be coming out this last year, but that obviously didn't happen. So now it's looking like it's going to be much later, uh, second half of 2024. And then unfortunately, it does look like HomePod mini pricing has increased in a number of countries Uh, Austria, Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain all uh, are priced higher by about 10 euros. And then it also went up, the price of a HomePod Mini also went up in the UK by 10 pounds. So Apple kind of doing some adjustments, I think, for the current economy. And I guess kind of related to that are some of Apple's Q1 numbers. Apple had their quarterly results call for the first quarter of 2023. And always a little bit confusing. These numbers are actually for the last quarter of 2022. That's how Apple just times out its uh, its quarterly results. So this is really Apple's holiday quarter, how they did over the holidays. And overall, it wasn't uh, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't great for Apple either. Revenue of 117.2 billion and a net quarterly profit of 30 billion. Those numbers sound great, but basically Apple was down year over year about five percent. 
For individual product categories, the iPhone, they sold 65.78 billion worth of iPhones versus 71.63 billion last year, so down about 8%. According to Tim Cook, basically had the supply chain been where they needed it to be, they would have sold a lot more iPhone Pros and probably that wouldn't have been down this year. So supply chain and just global economy issues kind of hitting the iPhone a little bit this year. Mac sales, $7.74 billion. That was down 29% from $10.85 billion last year. What really likely hurt them here was the delayed release of the Mac Mini and MacBook Pros that we just got, um, you know, recently. So had those been out, because originally the rumors were being were said that those machines were supposed to be out by the end of the year. I'm wondering if supply chain also had a role in that. They didn't really comment on that, but basically Mac sales hurt a little bit. Really good numbers, though, for iPad, $9.4 billion versus $7.25 billion, up 30% for iPad, likely helped by Apple putting out new iPads this past year. So that did well for them. Wearables, home, and accessories, that was down a little, a little bit, again, about 8%, $13.48 billion versus $14.7 billion last year. And then services did pretty well. $20.78 billion, up about 6% from $19.5 billion last year. So overall, a bit of a down quarter for Apple, which is unusual. I haven't had that happen for a very, very long time. But I think it could have been a lot worse just based on how things were going and sort of what we were hearing. So we'll have to see how, how Apple does in the next quarter with some new machines out there. Hopefully things will turn around a little bit. Um, but overall, I think a decent quarter for Apple. I mean, can't sniff at $30 billion in profit, I don't think, for any company. So uh, we'll see how the rest of the year goes from here. Now, looking a little bit toward the future, Apple seems to be continuing to explore their AR, VR headset. This is coming from the site, The Information. They say Apple engineers are looking for ways to create a more affordable version of their rumored. They, have, they kind of have to get the first one out first, and we need to know the price before we can kind of determine what affordable is. But you know the rumor is that Apple is working on this AR, VR headset. It's expected to be out this year. $3,000 price tag, maybe even more. So according to the information, Apple engineers are looking for ways to create one that would be more affordable. Uh, they're saying the first version that Apple wants to put out is really to test the limits of what we consumers are willing to pay for an AR VR headset. Uh, I have a feeling a lot of us are not going to be willing to pay $3,000 or more. So Apple is reportedly wanting to get down to a price point that's more in the price range of an iPhone. So somewhere in that $800 US to $1,600 US range, depending upon probably features and, you know, are you getting the standard version of the AR VR headset or the pro version or the ultra version or whatever Apple is going to end up calling it. Uh, as far as getting the price point down, Apple might need to do some things like reduce the quality of the components. So maybe not have 4K micro LED displays. Uh, they could use lower end chips, maybe not an A series chip, some other kind of chip in there, lower end processors. Uh, they could go, or I guess they could go with A series versus like an M series processor, something like that. 
They might have less expensive build materials, although that's a very non-Apple thing to do. They tend to like really like those nice high-end materials, but maybe there'll be a little more plastic in there. Apple's generally not a plastic company, but we have to wait and see. I mean, that's one way to get some weight down. Uh, and so we'll have to see where they go with that. I'd really like to see the first product first, though. <laughs> Right. As far as when Ming-Chi Kuo says that uh, Apple's targeting a cheaper version of the product by 2025. So if they get one out this year in 2023, about two years to get down to a less expensive version, I would think they'd want to move a little bit faster than that. Mark Gurman is also claiming that Apple has kind of given up on their AR glasses project. This was something that was going on supposedly in kind of co-development with the AR VR headset. The idea being that Apple eventually wanted to also put out a product that was just a set of augmented reality glasses that Gurman says has been put on indefinite hold so they can focus on getting out and getting to this more affordable version of the AR VR headset. So it sounds like Apple is kind of consolidating their efforts around this. I don't think that means that they've given up on the AR glasses project. It's just they're kind of placing it on hold. They don't know when they're going to get back to it, but it's likely something that they're going to want to continue to move forward with. So looking back at the first version of the AR VR headset, Bloomberg says a big selling point uh, for the devices, Apple is going to focus on eye movement and hand tracking as the main way of controlling the interface with the device versus using external controllers. So you'll be able to simply look at elements on the display to kind of select them with your eyes. You'll be able to use hand gestures like pinching to interact with elements. So they're saying it's going to have a very familiar iOS-like feel, including even the interface and kind of the the operating system, which is being called Reality OS or XR OS. And you'll have a home screen, you'll have app icons, customizable widgets, all that sort of stuff. It's going to use a combination of external cameras and internal sensors to pull this stuff off. So uh, sounds like it's going to be a very, very cool user experience and device uh, as far as software and features video conferencing is supposed to be a big part of this they're saying you're going to have a fully rendered face and body if you're doing one-on-one -on -one chats and it would switch to more of emoji or memoji like avatars for doing multi-person facetime calls they're working with supposedly content and media partners like disney and dolby Apple's planning on updating Apple TV Plus shows to bring a full big screen immersive experience to VR. And they're going to be able to let you watch in different virtual environments like this, like outer space or the desert. For text input, they say initially they're going to rely on dictation and Siri, but Apple is supposedly also working on a keyboard that would basically let you air type kind of a keyboard style interface that's not expected to be perfected before launch though at this point so definitely something they are working on overall sounds like a really really cool product the one thing that's really concerning me is something that i think we talked about on the previous episode of the maccast some rumors that apple plans to have an external tethered battery pack uh, which that wouldn't be so bad, except for the fact that 
They're also saying that battery pack is only going to have about a two-hour battery life. So you're talking about an AR headset that only lasts for two hours, and then you have to be swapping out batteries, and it costs more than $3,000. That just doesn't seem like a product that's going to fly with most consumers. really feels somewhat like a non-starter for me. So I'm hoping that rumor is really, really wrong, that it's really just some prototyping stages where they're using a tethered battery and they're going to get to an on-device battery that's rechargeable and also hopefully lasts longer than just two hours. But again, we're going to have to wait and see what Apple does on that side of things. I'd love to get your opinion on that, though. You know, what do you think about this idea of a tethered battery? I, I think you could sell it if it meant you got much longer battery life, but two hours is just not going to be enough, I don't think. On the software side, we are getting reports from sites like the information that Apple does want to let users use Siri to help them develop apps that they could actually put into the App Store for the headset, all without needing to do any coding. So the idea here is you'd be able to kind of call up and have it create virtual objects and animals and elements and and things that can act and react with real objects in your environment. Uh, They're supposedly also looking to do some things on the health and wellness side. So applications for, say, meditation and exercise And they're also looking into things like interactive books. They describe a Dr. Seuss book, uh, Oh, the Places You'll Go, where you could actually enter the book and sort of be walking through its environment. And that environment is going to then blend in and interact with your real world. So looks like they're really trying to create some unique and interesting content experiences I'm sure gaming is going to be a big part of what they're doing too, although we've heard some rumors contrary to that, but I don't know how you could get away with doing a VR headset again without kind of having some really great gaming experiences. I think that's going to be probably the most popular application. I get, you know, wanting to do some video conferencing things that are pretty cool, but really at the end of the day, we all just want to play some games on this thing, right? Anyway, it's heating up. It's getting exciting. I expect that we'll start to hear some hints about things and maybe even get an announcement at Worldwide Developer Conference. We're going to have to watch the rumor mill as we get closer to that. Here's one rumor that I guess is kind of a case of, let's just keep repeating the same rumor until it actually comes true. We've been hearing this one for a while, but it's out again. The ET News out of Korea says that Apple wants to release an OLED version of the iPad and the MacBook Pro. They're saying the target date is now 2024 for the iPads and 2026 for the MacBook Pros. They claim that Apple will have OLED panels for the iPad in 11 inches and 12.9 inches. But previous leaks from display analyst Ross Young, who's been pretty reliable, claimed that Apple would make the displays a little bit larger at 11.1 and 13 inches. Not a huge difference. So, you know, there could just be discrepancies in the rumors, but OLED possibly coming. Mark Gurman at Bloomberg seems to believe that 2024 could be the year for an OLED iPad Pro, along with what he says is an updated redesign of the iPad Pro lineup. Um, So a little bit uh, kind of in alignment with the ET report. 
As to what that redesign might look like, Mark Gurman didn't comment on that. But in another rumor, Ming-Chi Kuo tweeted that he expects Apple to release an all-new designed foldable iPad in 2024. He also claims that it would have a lightweight carbon fiber kickstand, something that Apple has avoided so far. So that would be a huge design update. He did say because of that, he's not expecting to see any new iPads this year, but also hinted that an I, the iPad mini could get an update in early 2024 as well. Now, he came out and said that, and then both Mark Gurman and Ross Young came out and claimed that they had not heard about any development of a foldable iPad coming by 2024. So they kind of doubt Ming-Chi Kuo there. And as a matter of fact, Ross Young has said previously, and I think he reiterated, that he believes Apple could be developing a 20.5-inch foldable notebook, possibly for release by 2025. But he hasn't commented on whether or not that would be running Mac OS or iOS. So if it's a thing that looks like a MacBook Pro running iOS and it's foldable, isn't that still just potentially an iPad? I don't really know. This all gets, you know, highly speculative as we know, and you can never believe anything till Apple actually announces it, but it's interesting to think about. So when you're thinking about a foldable device, are you more interested in a foldable version of something coming as an iPad or a Mac first? I'd be curious to know about that. Shoot, shoot me some emails. Send me some comments. Maccast at gmail.com. And then lastly in the news for this week, a couple of rumors about the next generation iPhone. Twitter leaker Shrimp Apple Pro, who's leaked rumors before, says the next iPhone is going to come with thinner bezels similar to the Apple Watch. Now, I was looking at my iPhone today, my iPhone 14 Pro, and uh, the bezels are pretty thin. So if they get even thinner, nah, I guess that's going to be nice. I don't know how much I'll really notice it, but hey, overall... He says the screen sizes and overall design are going to remain the same. So kind of the same squarish design. So we're not going to get beveled edges on the glass, just thinner bezels. And then rumors are that the next iPhone will also get Wi-Fi 6E and I assume Bluetooth 5.3. Ming-Chi Kuo says that Apple has actually paused development on their own Wi-Fi chips, though, to focus on their next generation 3 nanometer processor designs for the A-series processors. So we had been hearing rumors that Apple was trying to get Wi-Fi chips and Wi-Fi Bluetooth chips that were designed by them. I guess when we go to Wi-Fi 6E in the iPhone 15, it's still going to be Broadcom supplying those chips for Apple, at least for now. And at least one leaker claimed that the Wi-Fi 6E functionality could be limited to only the Pro models, but that seems like a weird feature to hold out just for an, uh, an iPhone Pro and not put it on the standard iPhone. So I'm taking that one with a grain of salt. And then for those of you out there who have an iPhone 14 Pro Max, there was a little bug that surfaced where some of those models were getting horizontal lines flashing across the screen when they were waking up or powering up. And apparently the latest iOS update, iOS 16.3, fixed that issue. So if you suffered from that, you're going to want to make sure that you upgrade your iPhone 
And then lastly, there's rumors that Apple may have an Apple Watch Ultra updated with a 10% larger display, likely pushing that already massive watch up over 50 millimeters. They're saying that could happen in 2024. And I think even more interestingly on this rumor is the fact that that could be Apple's first display to feature micro LED technology. Something we've been hearing that Apple's been looking at for a while. It's a little bit expensive, hard to produce. And so they the idea that they would start with their smallest screen makes a lot of sense to me. But again, probably not happening until sometime next year. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor, and that is Factor. You know, this new year, you've got goals, and Factor is here to help you achieve each and every one of them. Fuel up fast with ready-to-eat, nutritious meals delivered straight to your door, leaving you time and energy to tackle everything on your to-do list. Achieve and maintain your 2023 goals with Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, and start saving time eating well and living your best year yet. If you're too busy to cook with Factor, you can skip the trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready to eat in just two minutes, so all you have to do is is heat and enjoy. And no matter what your lifestyle is, Factor has delicious flavor-packed meals to help you live it to the fullest with keto, calorie-smart, vegan and veggie, and Protein Plus options on the menu each week. Prepared by chefs and approved by dietitians, each meal has all the ingredients you need to feel satisfied all day long. I'm getting some Factor sent to me, and I am particularly excited about these healthy lifestyle options. We've been trying to eat better. Part of my move out here is to gain more control over my lifestyle and uh, my diet goes along with that. So I'm very excited to try these. They have 34 chef prepared dietitian approved weekly options and there's always something new to try. So you've got great variety. Plus, you can round out your meals and replenish your snack supply with an assortment of 36 plus sweets, smoothies, juices, and more satisfying add-ons. If you want to cut back on your takeout, get Factor instead. Not only is Factor cheaper than takeout, but meals are ready faster than restaurant delivery. Again, in just two minutes. If you're eating vegan or veggie, it's a snap with Factor because each meal is prepared by chefs and approved by dietitians, so you know that your Factor meal has all the ingredients you want and nothing you don't. And if you're looking to mix it up, you can add protein to select vegan and veggie meals each week. Get Factor and enjoy eating without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered to your door, ready in just two minutes, no prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com slash maccast50 and use code maccast50 to get 50% off your first box. That's code maccast50 at factormeals.com slash maccast50 to get 50% off your first box. And a big thank you to Factor for their support of the show. I've done a lot of thing of the moments over the years. These are my kind of picks of cool things, stuff that I think you'll like. We even have listeners do some from time to time. 
but I don't think one of my thing of the moments has as has ever generated as much feedback as the last one that I did for you guys. If you missed it, I before the holidays was putting together some basically emergency boxes for all of my vehicles. So throwing in things like non-perishable food, water, uh, blankets, those sorts of things, flashlights, anything you might need for a car breakdown. Because I've moved to, as you may know, South Dakota. It's a cold environment. It's kind of out here in the middle of nowhere. There's, you know, when you're driving around, you can be out on roads where there's nothing but fields and farmland and stuff like that. So uh, you for something were to happen, I was trying to get prepared. And one of the things that I put in those boxes was these convenient little lithium-ion battery uh, battery starters, uh, specifically one from a company called Noco. I think it's Noco, N-O-C-O. And I have had a chance to use it already a couple times, and it works great. And I just thought it was really cool. Uh, so you can use it to start your car. You can also use it as an emergency battery charger for your iPhone. So it has a USB port on it. You charge it up with USB, keep it in the car, and then uh, you can use that. Obviously, you need to check it from time to time and recharge it and all those nice things. But it's a nice little convenient thing. It's got the little clip-ons for your battery, just like a jumper cable. But you don't have to rely on someone else. You don't have to, you know, have someone come along. You can actually hook this up to your battery and boost it and charge it yourself. And so, I think it's a great little product. Uh, they're about 100 bucks. They have different models. You can go kind of higher or lower depending upon your car, your vehicle, and what what your, what your needs are. Um, but a lot of you wrote in and said, yeah, I have one of these too. I absolutely love it. Different brands. I, I'm not so sure the brand matters as much. Uh, these NOCO ones are kind of nice. Uh, and they've got, you know, indicators and, and things like on that on them. They also uh, function as a flashlight. So it has a flashlight feature as well. So pretty neat. But uh, I wanted to share some of the feedback I got because I thought it was some great feedback. Daniel wrote in and he pointed out that depending upon your situation, it might be doing a might be worth doing a little bit of research on the smaller lithium ion boosters like the NOCO that I recommended or larger, bulkier lead acid boosters, more traditional battery boosters that might specifically meet your needs. Uh, it sounds like specifically uh, they're a little bit, the lead acid battery ones are maybe a little bit more versatile. They can deliver more cold cranking amps, which I think is important for certain situations. I'm not a battery expert, so I don't know a lot about this stuff, but Daniel said he's used the lead acid battery boosters and they've worked really well for him. So might be worth checking out again, depending upon your situation, depending upon what you're looking for. In my case, I really wanted something small, portable and convenient that could fit in this little box that you keep in the back of the car. Um, so these worked out great for me, but definitely great advice, Daniel. Always do your research when you're looking into products and make sure they're going to actually meet your needs. And actually, I have another tip coming up that was kind of related to that. Mike also wrote in and pointed out that in addition to a jump starter, especially if you're like me and you're in a cold weather environment, it might also be worth looking into a battery charger. This wouldn't be, I don't think, something that you would keep for emergencies in the car necessarily. They tend to be a little bit larger, but something you might have in the garage to hook your battery up to, especially again in cold environments, because weather can affect your battery. It can cause it to go dead and you may need to 
actually charge it up overnight or something like that, you know, put a full charge back into it. Because even with the emergency starter, right, you need to run the car to get the battery boosted back up if the battery is drained all the way out. So might be worth looking into a battery charger as well. And then finally, uh, like I had said, in addition to jump starting, this little NOCO battery can be used to charge your devices like your iPhone. And Robert wrote in to point out that for its size and the amount of charge that's in it, because they're really designed to kind of give this quick high amperage boost to your uh, to your battery. They're not really set up as battery packs like external battery packs for charging devices he pointed out you might be better off for emergency charging your phone also just getting a separate battery pack that's more like a dedicated you know cell phone charger or iphone charger battery because uh, you'll get more charges out of that and i totally agree with that uh, the whole point behind this is it, it's just for emergencies so yeah it's not something where you're going to plug your phone in and be expecting to get a full charge out of the thing. The idea would be, hey, my battery's running low. I need a little bit of juice so I can call emergency services so I can get somebody on the phone and you can plug into this and, and use it for that. But again, depending upon your usage and what you're doing, uh, you might want to get a separate battery for uh, doing that. So I thought this was all great feedback, all some great advice. And apparently you guys are super excited about, <laughs> about emergency uh, battery chargers and battery charging your, your car and stuff like that. So I love it. Keep it coming. It was great to get all that great feedback. Something else that we covered a while back, and I thought it had mostly sorted itself out. This really came up when Apple first released their M1 machines. You may remember there were a lot of these reports of people getting out of memory errors. So Apple had touted all the advantages of this, you know, integrated memory that they put into their M1 chips but uh, people were getting these weird out-of-memory errors, which seemed like they shouldn't be happening. And so we talked about those for a while. It seems like they were sorted out. I have a 14-inch M1 MacBook Pro that I use for work, and I've actually never encountered the error. So it was never really clear kind of what was triggering it or what was going on. And then it's been quiet on the out-of-memory error front for a while, except I got an email this week from Lewis who said that his new Mac Studio with 32 gigabytes of RAM was getting this out-of-memory error. And he said the notice was coming up most often when his Mac was asleep and the mail app was running. And he'd go to wake it up in the morning and he'd have the out-of-memory error, or, or even worse, it would kernel panic and crash and he'd have to reboot it. So he was doing some troubleshooting, looking at Activity Monitor, which is a great way to figure out what's going wrong with your Mac. You can look at processor usage. You can look at memory usage. We've kind of covered how to do that on the MacCast in the past. But he was looking in there, and he noticed that the Contacts D process was eating up all the RAM. I mean, it was going well past 32 gigabytes of RAM and causing the problem. Uh, Contacts D is the background process that 
I think handles syncing your contacts basically through iCloud. It's a, a, you know, D stands for daemon. It's running there in the background, basically a background process. And that was eating up all his RAM. So he emailed me to find out if one, anybody else in the community was having similar problems with the out of memory errors still. And two, I think just to get advice on how he could potentially further diagnose and fix the issue. And I did a little Googling around and searching and I found a Apple support thread that I'll link to in the show notes at maccast.com. And that noted that this particular issue with Contacts D could possibly be a bug or issue related to Gmail and contact syncing. I'm going to probably take it even further and just say this might be an overall issue with contact syncing and just the contact syncing getting uh, messed up somehow. I don't know if it would be corruption in a record or something going on. I think it could probably affect any email uh, platform, even Apple's or Yahoo, or whatever email platform, FastMail, whatever email platform you're using, if you're syncing contacts, right? So if you go into your internet settings and and you're able to sync contacts through your mail service, um, this may be where the problem comes in. So the, the basic fix is to go in and disable contact syncing for that account or that email service and then re-enable it and that kind of resets it or re-triggers it sort of the equivalent of turning it off and turning it back on again right for contact syncing and so lewis i think that's something that you could try out and part of the reason why i think this might not just be a gmail issue is lewis did note that he actually had the issue previously on his 2017 imac before he upgraded to the mac studio so this problem I think came over with that. And I'm going to guess that, so it's not even this specific version of the out of memory error is not related to even an M series Mac. I think it's just something that could happen with contact syncing and maybe that gets corrupted and just needs that little bit of reset. So if anybody's ever run into this before, especially if you've noticed this contact contacts D process using a lot of RAM or eating up all your RAM in the background, this may be a potential fix for that. And if anybody else has run into this and found a different fix or knows something else related to out of memory errors, please share your knowledge with us. Shoot us an email, send us an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. And then the last thing I have for you this week is a question about setting up automations and specifically setting up automations with shortcuts. Uh, Jacob wrote in and he was asking about app setting up Apple shortcuts that could enable or disable HomeKit devices based on the temperature or actually the weather. Cause he said, I was able to set up a shortcut to get the outside temperature from the weather app. But what I really want to do is take that information and use that to control HomeKit devices to say, turn on a heater when it gets below a certain, you know, when the outside temperature gets below a certain temperature. And with the shortcuts app on iOS, you do have the ability to create automations that run at specific times a a day. So you can set up a shortcut to run at a specific time. The issue is you have to set up a shortcut or an automation at a specific time. So if you want to run, say, an automation to check temperature in the weather app and then do something with a HomeKit product, say every five minutes, 
do the math, you'd have to set up like 288 shortcuts or automations. And so that didn't sound too appealing to Jacob. So he was looking for some other way to potentially set that up. And I did a little research. I don't know that I found a really great answer. I did find a couple of interesting projects that might be able to help out. One is from a guy named Josh Holtz. Again, I'll have links to all these in the show notes at MacCast.com. And he found out a way to set up a cron-style parser for shortcuts. And for anybody who doesn't know what a cron is, cron or cron jobs are something in Unix where you can set up automations or scripts to run at specific intervals, times of day. Basically, you can schedule scripts to run. And so it has a specific format, text format, for defining when and when you want them to run and at what frequency and that sort of thing. And so he set up the ability to do that with shortcuts. And the advantage here is, as I mentioned, you have to set up each automation to run at a specific time. Unfortunately, you with this solution, you don't get around having to do that. So if you wanted, you know, every hour your automations to run, your shortcuts to run, you would have still have to set up 24 different shortcuts. But the difference here is you can then have that parsing a single file that can run different shortcuts uh, depending upon that frequency. So you could have it checking every hour, but maybe you only have one that runs every hour. You have another one you want to run every six hours, and you have one that you want to run every 12 hours. You put all of those into a single shortcut that is just basically the cron, uh, the cron instructions, and then this parser will run every hour, parse that, and figure out which shortcuts you need to run. Because if you were doing it the other way around, you would have to set up, say, 24 times 3, because you have three different shortcuts that you want to run on different intervals. You'd have to set, you know, 24 times 3 times instead of just 24 times. Hopefully that makes sense. It's a little bit confusing even in my head now that I say it, but basically you have this scheduled cron shortcut to run at a frequency, and then you have this single cron tab style text file, basically, or shortcut that gets parsed on that schedule. So it makes it easier to adjust that, change it, because you just have one thing that you have to update. You don't have to keep setting up and rescheduling these scheduled automations, basically. So there's that out there. I also found a project from Adam Toe called AutoCuts. This one relies on a feature of shortcuts, which allows you to run an automation when you open an app. So you can set up a personal automation that triggers a shortcut when you're opening an app. And so the idea here is you would like basically just attach it to your most frequently run apps that you're going to be launching throughout the day. And this would trigger your automations that can happen on a schedule. So that's another interesting thing you could look into. I don't know if that's going to solve or if either of those things are going to solve your problem, Jacob. But uh, again, I'll have links to them in the show notes at MacCast.com. The biggest downside to both of these is that every time a scheduled shortcut runs, you do get a notification that cannot be disabled. So depending upon the frequency, 
you might be getting a lot of notifications. Of course, you can always just ignore them, but there is no way to turn them off. I think it's kind of a security feature to let you know that these automated things are actually running. So if you were to set up a lot of them, you'd be getting a lot of notifications throughout the day. So just something to be aware of there. Um, getting back to kind of your specific use case though, Jacob, there might be another way to go. And that would be to actually just get dedicated a dedicated home kit temperature sensor something that could read the temperature and then trigger automations in your home in your home based on those temperature readings and elgato makes both an outdoor and an indoor sensor each one of them runs i think about 80 dollars us so not maybe the cheapest way to go obviously you know just setting up an automation and having it run off the weather app doesn't cost you anything but these are nice little devices there's the eve weather which is the outdoor kind of weather station and it tracks all kinds of different things related to the weather and there's also the eve room uh, which can track air quality also humidity and temperature so though both of those things you can get set up connected to home and run home kit automations based on um, you know any one of those environmental factors, either outdoor or indoor. And now, of course, as we talked about earlier in the show, you could also, at least for indoor uh, temperature sensing, I guess you could put one outdoor too, although I don't know if you'd want to, uh, you could get a HomePod or a HomePod Mini. And uh, they have a built-in temperature sensor now that you can read and trigger automations off of. So... That's pretty cool. And anybody who has a HomePod mini already, just get the latest software update and boom, you now have a humidity and temperature sensor that you can use for home automation, which is pretty, pretty neat. So there you go. I did have one other kind of automation question, I guess, that came up this week and that came from Dan. Dan said, hey, can I, I have an old iPhone and I want to do some remote animal photography. I want to set this up. I, I couldn't remember if he's taking pictures of birds or squirrels or whatever it might be, but you know, someplace where you want to have a camera mounted, um, but you want to be far away so you don't disturb or scare the animal, but still be able to take uh, photos or pictures and he said i have an old iphone could i set up some sort of station for this or do some remote photography with this old iphone and uh i say absolutely i think that's a great use case for an old iphone i think one of the easiest ways to do this and it sounded like dan what you're looking to do is actually kind of set up the phone and then back away and be watching and actually taking the photos. So you can do that in a couple ways. Um, one way, although probably not with an older iPhone, is to use an Apple Watch. Uh, there's a camera app on the Apple Watch and you can remotely trigger the camera on your iPhone to take a picture or do video. Uh, the problem there is you do need to have the phone paired with your Apple Watch. So you probably don't want to use an old phone because you're probably using your Apple Watch with your current phone. And as you know, you can only have one Apple Watch paired with one phone at a time. So that may or may not be a use case for you. In the case of using an older iPhone, I think probably the easiest way to go 
for your use case would be to get a low-cost Bluetooth remote shutter device, which you can find on Amazon. Um, I don't own one, so I don't have a particular recommendation, but maybe somebody in the community has one that they like. And if you want to send that in, that would be great. We'll share that on a future episode of the MacCast. And then I also did a little bit of searching um, on the App Store to find out if there might be an app where you could uh, remotely connect basically two iPhones over your local Wi-Fi or maybe over Bluetooth, something like that, peer-to-peer style. And it does look like there's a number of apps that have this functionality. Again, I don't have any specific recommendations because I haven't used any of those apps. Uh, I haven't tried any of them out yet. But uh, again, maybe somebody in the MacCast community has a recommendation. And I do know you can also kind of go the other route. So I know you're looking more to do it kind of real-time, Um, But I believe there's also apps that will basically allow you to use old iPhones as security cameras. So you can detect motion, capture photos, capture video. And I would be interested if anybody has recommendations for apps they're using for that that they like uh, for you to send those in and shoot us some feedback. Or even better yet, send us a little audio review or audio comment. uh, One or two minutes maybe three minutes long is kind of the perfect length and send those in. And uh, I look forward to receiving that stuff, but I hope uh, that gives you some good information and maybe a direction to move in Jacob and uh, let us know how your, uh, how your animal photography works out. Uh, but with that, that is going to do it for the MacCast for this week. Uh, I do want to take a quick moment, thank a couple of our show supporters. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9, and you can leave a voicemail. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast, or you can find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.